I'm Bryce Abel, the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Are you ready? It's time for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 487 of the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, we have a great show coming your way. Bryce Zabel is going to be joining us. He's the uh, producer, creator of a lot of different shows, uh, including Dark Skies, if you remember that one, a sci-fi show, great show. And also, he wrote for Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Mantis, and all sorts of other things. And he's got a great new book out. I've had a chance to read it, and it's called Once There Was a Way. What if the Beatles had stayed together? fascinating book it's a lot of fun to read and i think you should go out and get it but um we're going to talk all about it to get you you know a little into it before you go out and grab it up and uh, bryce abel's coming up in a few minutes right here on on screen and beyond we got a great show too coming up about remakes of course and uh, we got a new papillon movie coming out to remake and uh, a lot of other things we'll get right into it it's time for remake madness right here on on screen and beyond Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness? Well, get ready. Lion King's going to be coming your way, and Sir Elton John will contribute a new song to the remake of Lion King. And his classic Lion King songs will be used, of course, like uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? But he will also be adding a new end credit song. So get ready for that. And LeBron James, his production company that he started, is working on a remake of 1990s House Party. And the Papillon remake, which we've talked about before, is going to be hitting theaters on August 24th this year. Get ready for that. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming away as far as new movies. New movies, Roland Emmerich is known for directing explosive disaster movies, including Independence Day, is going to be working next on a historic epic called Mayan Lord. It's about the Mayans, and it follows a shipwrecked sailor and a priest who end up living with the Mayan tribe, and then the conquistadors come. And World War II drama called Waiting for Anya will star Stranger Things' Noah Schnapp and Angelica Houston. And the Keanu Reeves sci-fi film, Replicas arrives on August 24th. And that's it for new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. It's taking you down to Sequel City for sequels. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Sequel City, well, as far as sequels, it's no surprise here, but Den of Thieves 2 is in the works. Gerard Butler will return as Nick O'Brien. And a sequel to a short film is in the works. Michael Fassbender will star in the comedy sequel, 
Kung Fury. And Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake will return in Trolls 2 on April 17th, 2020. That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next to the On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD. Well, as far as June 5th, that's the release date of The Last Ship, the complete fourth season. And Shameless, the complete eighth season, will be hitting stores on April 24th. And on April 17th, Claws, the complete first season, will be hitting stores. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? Movies on DVD, well, it looks like on April 3rd, Father Figures with Owen Wilson will be coming to Blu-ray. Also on April 3rd, Insidious, The Last Key slides into stores, and Molly's Game hits Blu-ray and DVD on April 10th. That's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time, it looks like. The CW is rebooting, remaking, whatever you want to call it, Roswell. It currently has no release date yet. We'll keep you informed on that. YouTube Red will release a show called Cobra Kai with Ralph Macchio and William Zabka bringing back their rivalry from the Karate Kid. And Grace and Frankie has been renewed by Netflix for a fifth season. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. Celebrity birthdays, it looks like on February 19th, Bellamy Young. Of course, she uh, plays the president on Scandal. Uh, past guests here at On Screen and Beyond will be turning 48 on February 19th. February 20th, Sidney Poitier turns 91. February 21st, Kelsey Grimmer turns 63. February 22nd, Drew Barrymore turns 43. February 23rd, Damon John of Shark Tank turns 49. And on February 24th, Billy Zane turns 52, and on February 25th, Sean Astin turns 47. That's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, well, let's see here. We did have one come in. Justin C. of Carlsbad, New Mexico, turns 63 on February 20th. If you, a friend or relative, are going to be having a birthday and want to celebrate it with all the listeners all around the world here on On Screen and Beyond, send the information to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. We'll do our best to get that out so everybody can wish you a very happy birthday. So happy birthday to all those people we mentioned, uh, celebrities and our listeners that are having a birthday. And uh, coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Bryce Zabel is going to be joining us. Bryce has given us so many great TV shows and uh, the uh, Dark Skies, like I mentioned earlier. He wrote some of the, the shows of uh, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. He gave us Mantis. He's got a great new book out. It's, it's if you are a Beatles fan, this is a must. If you if you if you just you know like the Beatles and you just like a good story, check this one out. It's uh, called Once There Was a Way, and it's it's about what if the Beatles hadn't broken up. It's a great story, great book. Check it out, and we're going to give you all the information about it coming up in a, just a second, right here, because Bryce Zabel is here to talk about it. Once There Was a Way, Bryce Zabel next on On Screen and Beyond.
Joining us today on On Screen and Beyond is a writer, producer, and director who has given us so many TV shows and movies, including Dark Skies, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Mantis, and Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. He has written many books, including his latest, Once There Was a Way, about what if the Beatles had stayed together. It's Bryce Sable. Bryce, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Bryce, i got to tell you, Everything you have done <laughs> is is exactly the type of thing I love, and also my listeners, because we, you know, uh, are all into uh, the Beatles, of course, music, and and your TV shows, Dark Skies. I thought that was a great show. It was probably the best experience I've ever had in television. Uh, in that, it's such it was such a controversial idea. This is the NBC series. Uh, about UFOs, but it was a period piece. It was set in the 1960s, and the concept was pretty much uh, what if John Kennedy was assassinated because he was going to tell the truth about UFOs in his second term. Mm -hmm. So we got uh, we got basically $46 million from NBC to tell 20 hours worth of uh, probably one of the most conspiratorial, subversive shows that they put on the air. So uh, I had a great time with it. Uh, and, but as you mentioned, all of these things are kind of fun to watch, but imagine how much fun they were to write and produce. Just really a good time. I've been very lucky. Yeah. I, I, I don't know where to start, but so I'm going to ask you, do you prefer to start with your book first, or do you want to go through what you've done previously and then get into your book? I'll, I'll go either way you want. Well, I mean, let me just uh, let me just give a kind of a heads up about the book, and then let's dive into whatever you want, and then we can cycle back to the book or whatever. But uh, the the book that you're mentioning is sort of the newest thing in my life in that it's it's just out now, and it's so it's it's brand new. It's called Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together? And as you mentioned, the whole concept uh, literally is a, 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 an alternative history, an alternate history is what we call it, uh, about the Beatles, and it's part of a breakpoint book series, uh, Breakpoint being the, the sort of the name of the series, where uh, these are some very high concept what ifs, and I've kind of written them with that same dramatic thrust that I brought to my television work. The first one was Surrounded by Enemies, What If Kennedy Survived Dallas? And it did so well that it won the um, Sidewise Award for Alternate History, something that Philip Roth has won. And, hmm. and so it was kind of a big deal, and it, uh, it got me a publisher uh, inquiring whether I wanted to do it again. And I, they said, what do you want to do for the second one? And I thought, it's kind of hard to follow up JFK because he's so iconic. But I thought there couldn't be anything better than the Beatles. That's right. about as iconic <laughs> as you can get as well. So I dived into that, and I, I, I honestly have to tell you, I'm so uh, honored that people like the book so much, and I'm I'm also thrilled that that I got to spend some time working on something that was so much fun, uh, and and also something that allowed people to feel good about reading it. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the people who have read it feel like they got to take a little vacation in, in, a, in a time where there's a lot of turmoil in the news, but they got to spend a few hours in that in, in, in a time where they could think about something that they, we all wish had happened. Right. The Beatles could have worked it out instead of let it be. Yeah. Now, how did you come up with the title? I mean, there's so many different titles you could have used. <laughs> I mean, well, there's a, a thousand of them, and, and I went through a number of them. One time I was going to call it All Together Now, and another time mm -hmm. um, Across the Other Universe, and things Ooh, like that. But I settled on Once There Was a Way, because literally uh, that's the... Uh, 
that's one of the lyrics in Golden Slumbers, which is on the Abbey Road right. album. Yes, and it's so evocative. And also, I think that it's just a, a kind of a cooler title. It's it's once there was a way to get back home. Well. Mm-hmm. That applies to the Beatles. There was a way for the Beatles to continue on. They didn't have to break up in 1969 and 1970. They could have figured out a way to keep on going. And so I spent uh, a a couple of years, you know, not full-time, but I was doing other things, but I was also sort of reading and thinking and sort of asking myself uh, what, what might have happened that could have allowed them to be together. And when I say the series is called Breakpoint, that's because I... I use for the concepts of these things that there's a break point, a moment in history where history in our timeline went one way, but it could have broken in another way. Mm-hmm. So with JFK, he doesn't get shot. Well, boom, there's a break point. For the Beatles, it was a little more subtle. I didn't, uh, I didn't have the giant break point. I had a series of smaller break points, but there's a place where the arrow of history kind of shoots off in a different direction, and then things happen as a logical consequence of that. And, uh, and 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 it just kind of works. It just kind of makes people uh, feel uh, it, it, that they're reading something that's so historical. Many people keep uh, saying that as they read it, they had to continually do research to find out what part of it was true and what part of it was made up. And I consider that, as an alternate historian here, one of the highest compliments anybody could pay me. Right. Now, and I, I'm guessing here, but I take it you were a big Beatles fan? Well... This is hardly fan fiction or anything. I'm certainly a Beatles fan, like I think most people are, or many people are, uh, but I didn't write it as a fan. Mm -hmm. I wrote it as a journalist. My previous incarnation before being a television dramatist was, I literally was a TV uh, reporter. I was a CNN correspondent at the beginning of my career. So what I tried to do was... Uh, create a a real situation for once there was a way, what if the Beatles stayed together, Uh, and not something that was crazy, improbable, or science fiction. So in other words, I have not written a time travel book. Nobody goes back in time to keep the Beatles together. None of that. It's just a historical account, as if you were reading, say, one of those classic Beatles histories like Shout Mm -hmm. or something like that. Instead, you're reading the book where the Beatles didn't break up in 1969 and 1970, uh, but figured out a way that they could work with each other and still maintain their individual personas that had emerged so strongly in those years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and while you know, people can argue about it, in fact, I hope they do. I, I, I hope that one of the things that happens with the book is that people read it and go, well, I would have thought, or this or that, or get with their friends and talk about it. But uh, I always applied the standard of it's not a fantasy other than the fantasy that the Beatles stayed together, but the individual components of this need to be grounded in a reality. Uh, they need to have been something that might have happened. A good example would be uh, I used album names for a couple albums that were, actually existed in our time frame. In our time frame, we called it the White Album, but the working album title was A Doll's House. And in our time frame, they called it um, Abbey Road, but the working title was Everest, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and also, for example, uh, in, in the book, the Beatles do play at Woodstock, for example. That's kind of an interesting thing that allows them, I mean, that allows that to happen. But they were invited to play at Woodstock. It could have happened easily. So I tried to stick with things that might have happened, uh, things that... 
never were but might have been, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and the way you weave things together, uh, I remember back in Dark Skies, uh, you actually had an episode where the Beatles, uh, the the Lowengard, went to uh, see the Beatles who were, it was all intertwined in the way you, I mean, it was, it's history, but you've added that twist to it, and it was it's just great. History. That was one of my favorite episodes of Dark Skies, although I had many. I really do mm-hmm. adore the series. I mean, it was just, I think it stands up very well today. Oh, it's yeah. Still, it's available on DVD as the whole series, but it stands up well because it was shot then as a period piece, so it hasn't dated itself in the same way that it, that it might have. But, but the episode you're talking about, Dark Days Night, uh, was literally uh, winding the UFO uh, John Lowengard storyline into the Beatles appearing on the Ed Sullivan show. And the reason I say it was one of the best things and most fun that I've I've ever done is that in order to shoot that uh, episode, we had to restage the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. So we found a theater in downtown LA. Uh we dressed everybody up in period costumes, of course. We found a Beatles uh group that was very good and looked the parts. Uh, in fact, a John Lennon character in particular looked very much like him and had it, had him down uh, perfectly. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote that episode, and that was uh, that was terrific. But you know, when you talk about uh, the weaving of history into these other things, uh, I, I kind of have developed something that I've done since Dark Skies. I did it for the JFK book, Surrounded by Enemies, and I've done it for the Beatles book, Once There Was a Way, which is this: the I I. I literally create a timeline that's divided into three different columns one of them one of the columns is well what happened in history so i just pull out of a a history book uh different things that happened and put them in the chronology and then i also put in the uh second column the things that happened to the the particular story i'm telling so for dark skies it was like what was going on in ufo events during those times and with the Kennedy thing, what was going on in Kennedy's life and with the Beatles, what were they doing? And you start to see where things, that relationships line up that you hadn't seen before, and you see things in a slightly different way, which creates the third column where you put your own spin on it and say, well, what if this led to that instead of this other thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the other thing I think you have to do if you're going to be a successful alternate historian is you just have to be bold. You just have to make some uh, tough uh, or uh, edgy choices because I'm not, I wasn't interested in JFK and just doing a, a thing that made him look like a, a hero across the board. I think if he hadn't been assassinated, it wouldn't have all been champagne and roses. He would have still had a very rocky re-election and a very rocky second term that might have ended prematurely. With the Beatles, same thing. Just because the Beatles might figure out how to stay together doesn't mean that all their uh, various issues that they had with each other would have gone away. Far from it. All those issues would simply have been dealt with in a different way. So if if you do this right, you find a way to tell a slightly different story, but you don't tell it um, as, a, as a fantasy. You tell it as if it's just the way history rolled out in this particular timeline. So one of the things that I think readers are really, really responding to about the book is that we know very strongly right now 
who these characters are. They're some of the best characters around, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. We know what each one of them sounds like in our head. We know how they sort of talk in our own heads. And uh, so uh, what I tried to do in Once There Was a Way is to get, let them continue to talk, but about this different history. So it it really allowed people to see new adventures of the Beatles. These are strong characters. They're as strong as Batman or, or you know, uh, Captain Kirk or oh, yeah. Hamlet. Yeah. I mean, these are really strong characters. We all know who they are. So to actually, and, and the sad part of our lives has been their story as the Beatles ended in 1970, officially, and we've there's no story that ever replaced it. So what I've tried to do is give us some new adventures of the Beatles so that those of us who do love them, even those of us who just respect them or want to know more about them, can have a chance to see this alternate vision of how it might have turned out. Mm. Now, in your career, I mean, you, you know, you see a lot of people and everything. Do you ever get to meet any of the Beatles? Oh, I wish I had. I have not. Uh, I also write about UFOs, and people say, have you seen a UFO? And I say, I have not. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean you can't know a lot about these. Right. Things. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've, seen, I've, seen the Be- I've seen various Beatles in performance. I've seen Paul and Ringo. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I haven't met them. Although, listen, if that can ever happen as a consequence of this book, nobody will be happier than, a, than <laughs> I will be. I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So why did you decide to write this book, though? Well, I think you write a book. Well, nobody writes a book to get rich these days, so that wasn't the motivation. (laughs) It was because creatively I wanted to. Uh, I've done pretty well in my career by when I want to either read or watch something and I can't find it anywhere, uh, I write it myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I sold a movie to Joel Silver in the uh, 90s. about going to Mars. Uh, not because I've ever been to Mars, but because I would like to go to Mars. So our, since there, since I couldn't go to Mars, I wrote a book about it, I mean a movie about it. Uh, the same with the Beatles. Uh, I, I just simply thought uh, one of the great tragedies of modern culture is that these four insanely talented individuals uh, let their own uh, issues get between them and prevent them from doing something that would have been as extraordinary as what they had already done. And wouldn't that have been great? I mean, mm-hmm. let me put it this way. Uh, the Beatles were contemporaries of the Rolling Stones, right? They mm-hmm. both uh, started yeah. in the, at the same time. They both started in the same place. And guess what? The Rolling Stones are still touring today. Right, yeah. So Paul McCartney is still touring today. It isn't inconceivable uh, then in another time frame, in that alternate universe out there that uh, the physicists tell us are infinite, that in one of them, uh, the Beatles managed to hold it together for a good long time. So I tried to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. Now, personally, away from the book, is there a, yeah. is there a Beatles song that uh, you like the best? Oh, gosh. Well, that's, that's uh, a great question that there may be no good answer. I know, they're all good. (laughs) many that I love. I have a favorite album, sort of, in Abbey Road. I think a lot of people say that. uh, You know, interest... uh, You know, as it comes to me, I'll tell you. But Mm -hmm. I I will say one thing about a song that I wanted to put out to your uh, listeners. Um, One of the things we 
trying to do with the book. The book exists as itself. And by the way, if people want to uh, learn more about, I mean, buy a book, the cheapest rates are on Amazon. Amazonbeatles.com is a site that we've got that takes you straight to the Amazon page where they can get it. But we also created a fully realized website called whatifbeatles.com. So whatifbeatles.com has all these Easter eggs in it where there's this ancillary material. Uh, so it, that, that sort of supplements and uh, gives life to the book in addition to the book. So you can see some of these uh, fictitious Beatles album covers that oh, never cool. were but might have been. You can see those on whatifbeatles.com. And what, now to get you back to the song, one of the things that we decided to do when we were putting together promotion and marketing for this thing is um, I – uh, reached out to a very, very talented musician named Brian Brengelson, who is uh, uh, plays in a band here in the L.A. area, who is a, just a vibrant Beatles fan himself. And Brian wrote a song for us that is a Beatles song that exists in the book only. It's called Show Up, and this song in the book is a song that the Beatles record in 1971 at George Harrison's house Friar, at, at Friar Park in his garage recording studio. So we found a vintage recording studio out here in Ventura County uh, stocked with 1970s recording equipment, the same stuff the Beatles were using back then. And Brian managed to find the exact instruments that the Beatles were playing with, um, including a drum kit that's exactly what Ringo had. Wow. And we got the actors and singers together for this really marvelous song, and we recorded a music video of Show Up. And if people want to see that video and hear that song, they can go to a site that we set up called morebeatles.com. And at morebeatles.com, you get to hear basically the Beatles playing a song that never existed but would have existed or could have existed had they stayed together. Um, and that kind of leads me to one thing about the music that I, I think is, is interesting. Lots of people over the years have said, well, you know, I just uh, made a mixtape of all the Beatles solo work. And, you know, people have played that game for a long time. Mm -hmm. I've played it myself. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. But I, I sort of felt that the book had to be to a higher standard because if the Beatles had stayed together, they wouldn't have just kicked in the solo work from our timeline. They would have been impacted and affected by events that were happening to them because the Beatles had stayed together. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, the Beatles didn't play at Woodstock in our timeline. Well, they did in uh, my timeline. And so certain new songs would have emerged. So over the course of the book, there's probably five, six, seven, eight, I can't, I don't know exactly how many songs are referenced as being Beatles songs that were recorded and on these uh, different albums, and you've never heard them before, so I thought it would be fun to give life and voice to at least one of them, which is the show up song at morebeatles.com. So, you know, so cycling back to your question, though, <laughs> I bought myself a little time. What's my favorite Beatles song? And you know, to show you how tough that is, what's yours? It's, it's, I was just going to say the same thing. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, you got Let It Be, you've got uh, Hey Jude, you've uh, just so many songs. That I, I couldn't answer that. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's absolutely incredibly difficult. It is. I, I have a number of them, but to elevate one, but that's part of the problem. If, if you start to say, well, you know, let's, um, 
let me rank. I've seen this done. Uh, Rolling Stone and various people on the Internet mm-hmm. are like, the Beatles' best songs ranked. That's kind of hard. I mean, I think the easiest thing to do with Beatles music is to say, there's maybe tier one, tier two, and tier three. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's possible yeah. to sort of put them in a in a group. I have great fondness for uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, Here Comes the Sun from George Harrison. I oh, think yeah. he, these were brilliant songs. McCartney, I mean, my God, uh, Hey Jude, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Let It Be. I mean, these are just so iconic and wonderful. And Lennon, oh my God, he... he he just excelled all the way through, and he he was so vibrant and changing so many different things. I I I I just have to throw up my arms and say I like them all. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's no there's no doubt. And and the thing is, uh, of course they all they all went on to do great songs individually. But if they like you say, if they had been together, what would have happened to those songs? Would they have changed? A lot. They they would have well. They they wouldn't have changed a lot. But let's just imagine for a second. And there's a good example. Imagine. (laughs) Um, Let's imagine. Imagine by John Lennon. uh, All things must pass by George Harrison. Mm -hmm. uh, Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Mm. Photograph by Ringo Starr. Okay. Yeah. Now let's take those songs that are so vibrant as solo works in our own heads. They probably would have sounded essentially the same. But you'd have had the Beatles sitting in a room together, uh, figuring out how to bring them to life. Right. And even though they're all fantastic in their own right, and I can take nothing away from them, I think they would have been different mm-hmm. uh, a little bit, and they probably would have been better. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree These with you. You guys were magic together, something that uh, all the studio musicians or friends uh, in the world uh, couldn't duplicate. When John, Paul, George, and Ringo got in a room together, they did something, even when they weren't getting along, they did something that was the the, the, the sum uh, exceeded the parts. Yeah, no doubt. Jeez, it just, uh, it's, and like you say, what if? I mean, it's just so many things, you know, what if they had stayed together and what if they had done these songs? And, and uh, the, the book sounds great. I mean, I can't wait to read it, and everybody should definitely, you know, get a hold of this one and uh, check it out. Well, I will say I am gratified uh, at the responses it's been getting. I mean, if you go to the Amazon page, you just read a few of those reviews, and they seemed it seems to have uh, struck a chord for people in that uh, it, it, it it is wish fulfillment mm, of its yeah. own kind. Yeah. But what they like about it is that instead of wish fulfillment that could never ever have happened, or is a time travel story, or some magic or fantasy or whatever, what they like about this wish fulfillment is that it feels authentically real. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I love. And and uh, let me give an example. Uh, and and we can. And after I do this, we should talk about the other shows and all that. But um, one here's an example for your listeners. Um, something that almost happened is that in uh, in the late '60s, United Artists, which was the film company the Beatles had done Hard Day's Night and Help for, um, the Beatles still owed them a movie, uh, and Yellow Submarine didn't count. And uh, they were casting about for another movie, and at that very time, United Artists was negotiating for the rights to The Lord of the Rings uh, from J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, a, a belief that maybe the Beatles should star in it, and maybe they should get Stanley Kubrick to direct it. Uh, he had just, he was coming off uh, 2001, um, 
This is all confirmed, by the way, a conversation that Paul McCartney had with Peter Jackson in 2002. Huh. It was Lennon's idea to do it. And uh, what was kicked around was that Paul would have been Frodo, Ringo would have been Samwise Gamgee, uh, of course Harrison, the mystic of the Beatles, would have had to become who? Gandalf. And, uh, and Lennon wanted to be Gollum. And guess what? In the book, Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together, they do make Lord of the Rings with Stanley Kubrick, and huh. it's a really cool movie. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So you really weave a lot of, of things into it that, that could have happened. Well, I mean, you do a lot of reading uh, first. You know, you have a few working theories about how a book like this must might work, but then you do a lot, a lot of reading, and these things start to swirl around, and also you know what's going on at the times. So here's another quick example. John Lennon, we know for sure, was targeted by the Nixon administration, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, sick the FBI and the INS on him. Um, if John Lennon had stayed with the Beatles, he still would have been politically outspoken, uh, and he still would have been targeted by the Nixon administration for some of the things he was saying and doing. But guess what? As a member of the Beatles, the Nixon administration would have probably targeted Paul and George and Ringo as well. Right. So suddenly you have uh, a storyline like that, and, and in this story, we probably all remember that John Dean was the guy who ratted out Nixon during the Watergate hearings of 1973, in the summer of 73. In the book, in the summer of 73, uh, he, uh, he ends up saying that the Beatles are on the Nixon administration enemies list. So there's kind of that kind of fun sense of things and also during this uh, book the Beatles meet Steve uh, George Harrison meets Steve Jobs for example mm -hmm. um, the Beatles spend a night partying with Hunter S. Thompson that kind of thing <laughs> uh, Muhammad Ali's in it so a lot of the icons of the 60s and 70s get rolled into this book in that kind of fun way that you're referring to where you wind the the real history of the time in with the this new adventure and this new mythology that that I'm creating, and so far, uh, people seem to think that's a lot of fun. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I love it. Love the way you do that. Yeah, it's really, really good. And uh, hey, so uh, yeah, everybody should go out and get that book definitely. Once there was a way, and uh, like you said, you can go to whatifthebeatles.com. Correct. Yes, and you can go to Amazon and get it, and uh, check. Uh, just and, and by the way, just to run those real quickly, then. So there's three things to remember, folks. If you want to know a little bit more, you can get the book directly at AmazonBeatles.com. You can see these Easter eggs and these other albums and that kind of thing at WhatIfBeatles.com, and you can listen to the song and the, see the music video at MoreBeatles.com. So What If Beatles, More Beatles, Amazon Beatles. Hmm. <laughs> a lot of great stuff to check out because. Well, by the way, you could probably appreciate this. I was astonished that I was able to get the Amazon Beatles URL. I thought that's got to be impossible, but there it was. It was there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So now you you've also weaved you know like you're talking about dark skies. You weave things yeah. in there, and uh, but uh, you also did Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman, as a producer and also as a writer, correct? Yes, that's right. I, I was lucky enough to have worked with Deborah Joy Levine, who was the creator of Lois and Clark. I, she and I had worked on a, 
oddly enough, just a it was a legal series called Equal Justice on ABC the year before, and we'd gotten to be very good friends. So when she got the uh, the Lois and Clark assignment, uh, she rang me up, and uh, I ended up spending roughly six months in a trailer on the Warner Brothers lot with uh, Deborah Joy and her brother Dan and myself, just sort of coming in every day and. Uh, shooting the breeze about what Superman meant, reading thousands of comic books, talking to people, and thinking about wh- how the show should come together. And uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be picked to write the first episode after the pilot. So the episode I wrote is the one called Strange Visitor from Another Planet. And that's the one where Clark realizes for the very first time that he's an alien, uh, which the, the comics that I grew up reading never really got into but you know me and my fascination with uh, aliens so i i just thought well that's kind of a something that's very poignant if you are clark kent and you grow up and you think that you're a human like everybody else but you've got these special powers you're kind of confused and then you realize you're an alien you're the only survivor of your entire planet and you're on this planet earth surrounded by all these other humans what do you make of that right. so that was really a lot of fun i was also lucky enough by the way to do the episode called the green green glow of home and that was the one where we sort of reinvented uh kryptonite so uh, a couple of very iconic things the other thing i got to do that i'm frankly most proud of is in strange visitor from another planet it ends with the first interview that lois lane has with superman and remember the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve? Um, uh, that was the big scene up on the rooftop where he actually does something that you couldn't get away with today, where he uses his X-ray vision to tell her she's wearing pink panties. I, right. I mean, I don't think you could. I think if I put that in a script today, that would not fly. Yeah, uh, Superman or not. Uh, but. Uh, it was kind of a joy to find a different way to do that first meeting. And, it, and Terry Hatcher, uh, who played Lois Lane, was such a terrific actress uh, and did such a great job with it. It still moves me even today. I watched it the other day. I'm giving a speech next week at the uh, International UFO Congress in Phoenix. And so I'm working on a presentation, and I pulled out that clip of uh, – Lois interviewing Clark, and I got all emotional. <laughs> I really thought, oh, my God, these guys are selling it so well. I mean, I think my words were well chosen, but, you know, words are words. you got to have an actor who can pull it uh, off, and uh, Terry certainly was that. And Dean Cain, uh, I think, for the show itself, was a terrific Superman and, and did a great job. Yeah. Well, one thing about, uh, you know, of course, uh, I'm at the age uh, that I grew up with the traditional Superman, of course, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Christopher Reeves, uh, not Christopher Reeves, but uh, George Reeves back in the... George Reeves, yeah. yeah. And, That's uh, too confusing. One of those guys should have changed his name. Yeah. No <laughs> but, you know, I like Lois and Clark because it was more of the traditional Superman. Uh, yes. You know, it, now they're so dark. And not, not, I'm not saying they're bad, it's just that you know they're a lot darker than they used to be and everything and uh, but that one that show stayed true to you know the original costume and the, that type of thing so uh, i just like that you show you know um I, I do have a lot of uh mixed feelings about the the current incarnation of superman i think he is a little too dark um i, I which you know I, I, lois and clark 
didn't try to be anything more. It wasn't trying to be a traditional interpretation or not. It was trying to flip the relationship right. and say that Clark Kent, for the first time, I mean, people had always thought of Superman as the main character, and Clark Kent as the secret identity, right? Mm -hmm. But what we really, really dug into for the series was to say, no, Clark Kent's the main character. Clark Kent is who he thinks he is. And Superman is the costume he puts on and the identity that he plays around with. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lois Lane, rather being a poor second fiddle to Clark and Superman, uh, was a lead in her own right. And by putting the relationship between the two of them uh, in the forefront, it just opened up a lot of different interesting storylines, and it made it very personal. And and clearly the fact that the uh, female audience for Lois and Clark was so strong and so loyal, I think, bears that out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, she, got to, she, she had top billing. I mean, <laughs> let's face yes, it. Lois and Clark. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Now, with all the resurgence of, of TV shows that were, uh, you know, hits back in the past, like Roseanne sure. and all these other ones that are coming back now, uh, any chance you think, uh, like, Dark Skies would come back or anything like that? I would love nothing more. And, in fact, on my uh, – I have a YouTube site, and on that site I have a, a video that we created about a return of Dark Skies, what it might look like. Um, but the problem, I have. To, there's a couple of problems. First, I don't own it. So if it was up to Bryce, uh, he said, speaking in the third person, <laughs> um, I would actually go out there immediately and reboot it. I'd love nothing more than to spend a few more years telling Dark Sky stories. It would be my pleasure, my joy, my passion. I would do it in a freaking instant, but I don't own it. So then it goes down to Sony. What would what would cause Sony to do it? Well, I've been after Sony to consider that for years. Um, I did manage to get the DVD set created because I thought that might create um, some fan uh, appreciation from a new set of fans that could cause them to see it in a different light. Uh, but at the end of the day, things that get rebooted happen to be the hits of the time. And Dark Skies, while it was... Uh, what I would call a cult hit and that uh, mm -hmm. many, many people are very passionate fans of it uh, and its numbers were not bad at all uh, for a Saturday night show um, it wasn't considered a, a top ten show uh, it only went one season and so based on the Hollywood standards of what merits a reboot uh, I guess they would rather reboot Hawaii Five-0 and uh, Magnum P.I. and mm, you know, yeah. shows like that so uh, I guess the answer is uh, I would do it in a second. I will never give up trying to do it, uh, but I don't. I don't know how to convince Sony to pull the trigger on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because too bad. I mean, I mean, it was so well written, and and the, the, one of the biggest things that I I'm kind of stuck on is if a show doesn't have a story, 
it's got nothing, you know. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff out there that have nothing, you know, to be honest. Absolutely true. <laughs> but they become hits, so, you know, hey, yeah. as long as the money's coming in, the studios don't care, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily that's, that's have to correct. be well-written or anything. So, But Dark Skies really was, and Lois and Clark, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, they, um, I don't know. Well, I will tell you one thing. Uh, I think this actually speaks to your uh, your comment there. Uh, when Brent Friedman, my co-creator on Dark Skies, and I were uh, um, developing the series, we felt that it was such an outrageous idea that Kennedy was killed over UFOs, uh, that and that that propelled the series forward from the pilot on. We felt that was so outrageous uh, that uh, networks would be afraid that we couldn't keep that high wire act going. So Brent and I spent like three months arcing out five years of dark skies wow so when we and then we put it all in a briefing book sort of a top secret classified briefing book that we left at the networks when we pitched it Mm -hmm. and that laid out these five years so anyone who thought these guys can't keep it up that was answered and it worked apparently because uh we went to three networks in one day uh, in in uh, when we were trying to sell it, and by the end of that day we had two offers, and by the next morning we were in business with NBC. Hmm. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, that was... and, uh, and I think one of the things that that notebook is legendary for is so we created this notebook that literally looked like a top secret briefing book, right? <laughs> and it came wrapped in plain brown wrapping paper tied up with string. Uh, with a gold foil seal on it and top secret stamp on it, right? And we left that at the end of our pitch with these executives, okay? And so we could just imagine them sitting at their desk after we left, and they had to get a... It was very interactive for its day. Now everything is interactive virtually. This was interactive physically. Right. So here's this, this thing that's been left on their desk. So first they have to get out a pair of scissors and cut the string. So they cut the string. Then they have to uh, unwrap the package. When they unwrap the package, inside it is this very authentic-looking classified briefing document with a gold foil seal holding it together. (laughs) And on the cover it says, by opening this, you accept the penalties of treason if you speak about it. (laughs) So so these network executives had to sit there and go, wait a minute, do I really want to open this? What, What is this? And then obviously... Uh, at least two of them opened it, and so they had to break the gold foil seal, and then it basically said that in order to get the truth out about what was really going on, it was going to be necessary to use the cover of fiction to tell that story, and that these people who were reading it had now been enlisted in that cause. Hmm. So it was wild and wacky, and it worked. Yeah. So I'm I'm very proud of that, too. So that's very similar to what you did with the DVD release, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the the DVD release. By the way, if anyone ever uh, wants to know the show that we're talking about, who's never heard of it, it is not the Dark Skies that was released as a feature a couple of years right. ago with Carrie Russell. That just really irked me because uh, they basically did an alien abduction storyline using our title. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, our story was about alien abductions. I never felt more ripped off in my life to that. So please don't buy or rent that one. You're looking for the Dark Skies TV series 
uh, set of uh, DVDs. Um, and I have to say that the Shout Factory, which released the DVD set, did one of the best jobs I've ever seen on any television series in mm-hmm. terms of their release, in terms of the extras. They yep. did a, they did two hours worth of documentary on it that was so insightful and so terrific. They have Easter eggs peppered throughout the whole thing. Uh, they they found stuff that Brent and I didn't even know existed. I went through all my personal files and pulled everything that I could find out for them, and they put all that in. Like I said, it's just never been better. So um, that's still available uh, today, and I think it'll be available for a while on Amazon. And uh, I'm I really. Uh, I've been told by people who watch it that they get a couple episodes in, and then they didn't have any intent to start binging it, but pretty soon they're like, damn, where's this going? Right. It's so different. <laughs> it's it's this period 60s noirish thing where everything from Vietnam to, uh, as you mentioned, Beatlemania to uh, the civil rights movement, everything's tied up in this UFO invasion, including the Kennedy assassination. And it, you just kind of get compelled to want to find out how it's going to end. Mm. And, and you, you picked a great cast. Well, we, we ended up uh, having, uh, we did have a great cast. Thank you. Um, the two leads are, uh, uh, are terrific actors. Um, and, they play the sort of the naive young lovers at the beginning who uh, fall into this web of deceit. And uh, that's Megan Ward, who plays uh, Kim Sayers, and that's uh, Eric Close, who plays John Lowengard. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the – they always say in Hollywood, you know, your, your thing's only as good as your villain. And I won't say he was a villain, but J.T. Walsh played oh, yeah. the head of Majestic 12. And mm-hmm. uh, J.T. was just – one of the most fearsome actors he's passed on now, but he was a guy who you saw him on camera and you just thought he could eat you for lunch. I mean, oh, yeah. he just had that really <laughs> tough uh, persona. And um, so when Brent and I were writing the pilot, we kept writing this Bach character and as if he was J.T. Walsh thinking, we'll never get him because he's a feature actor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when we wrote it and they said, well, who do you see playing this? We said, well, you know, we wrote it thinking of J.T. Walsh, but you can't get him. And they said, well, let's find out. And they went to JT, and he signed on for it. And I got to tell you, in person, he was just as frightening as he was on camera. Really? And I had some insane uh, conversations and disputes with this man, uh, and he put it all on screen. So really, I think he drove the series with his his. He he. I think he had a lot of uh, a lot of issues, um, and he. He touched on all of those. He pulled on all of those in his performance. It's the last performance J.T. Walsh ever gave. He died uh, immediately after the series was canceled. Oh, wow. Uh, so that was the last thing he ever did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was great. He did a great job. He was job great. That. Oh, jeez. Huh. But scary. Scary yeah. man. <laughs> so um, now another thing that you did was which surprised me because it's a, I mean it's still in the same vein <clears throat> excuse me uh, of of mysteries and things like that but you wrote Disney's Atlantis the Lost Empire uh, I I wrote the first draft of it mm-hmm. uh, yeah uh, m- 
I uh, and my wife and I wrote it actually. My wife Jackie and I wrote oh, it. And yeah. by the way, uh, she's a good writer in her own merit. We won the Writers Guild Award for a miniseries we wrote a few years ago uh, called Pandemic. But um, Jackie and I had been brought in by Disney at the time to talk to them um, about, I believe it was doing Cleopatra. They wanted to do a Cleopatra uh, animated film. Mm-hmm. They they didn't have a script. Uh, and I, I just re- remember saying, um, I, I just thought that this one, it just seemed like it could be a lot of trouble. And I said, I'll tell you what I'd rather do. I'd rather do something like, uh, I hear you're thinking of doing Atlantis, I'd rather do that, which is a big thing. They wanted to hire us for Cleopatra, so they could have easily said, well, forget it. If you don't want to do Cleopatra, we don't want you to do Atlantis, but they said, okay. So we wrote, um, uh, and so we basically wrote up what became the Atlantis film, uh, created the characters in the world, and uh, the the first uh, pass at it, and then um, I, it's, um, Let's see who Josh Whedon came after us. Oh wow! Uh, and um, possibly even uh, the director did a pass himself. So when I actually look at Atlantis on screen, even though we have uh, credit on it, it's not it's not 100 percent anything that we wrote. It's, mm-hmm. it's an evolution of what we wrote. Yeah, kind of a Hollywood thing that yeah. happens all the time. And how is that when you 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 write something? It's your baby, and then yeah. then the end product doesn't end up what you, you know, sometimes not even close to what you wrote. <laughs> well, I think that you can probably appreciate that's why I write books, like Once There Was a Way with a Beatles <laughs> Right. Because at least when I wrote uh, the Once There Was a Way book, I got a few notes from my editor, but nothing substantial. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. basically they didn't call in another writer to redo my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, they printed it, which is lovely. Yeah. Um, but... If you can't handle the thought that your work is not the final product, you cannot work in Hollywood. Right. Uh, because in order for your work to be the final product, you have to turn out to be J.J. Abrams or David Kelly or mm-hmm. you know, or Aaron Sorkin. You know, yeah. a very very elite get that get to do things their way without question. Yeah. Um, the rest of us take lots of notes and sometimes get replaced. Yeah. And it's not fun, it's not easy, um, which, by the way, takes me back to where I said Dark Skies was one of the best experiences in television. The reason it was is that ultimately what Brent and I had created was so strange and so unique in its take that I think the network and the studio thought, we can't find anyone that will figure this out like these guys. <laughs> these guys. Only these guys can do this thing. So basically, the network left Brent and I alone to tell the story that we wanted to tell. And when I look on the screen now, um, I see about, um, uh, I see, I guess, uh, I, it's about 95% what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's rare, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, very rare. But but even even when, uh, taking the Lois and Clark example, um even though I have singular writing credit on Strange Visitor and uh, Green Glow of Home and, and a later one called um, All Shook Up, um, it doesn't mean you're not getting notes. You're getting notes from the studio. You're getting notes from the network. You're also getting notes from your uh, fellow producer writers. Um, so you get a lot of input. Uh, and sometimes you feel like you're just processing notes. Um, but uh, 
that's the process. I mean, that's, right. that's yeah. this, this is what we signed up for. Um, yeah. So you just got to take it in stride. Uh, sometimes it's uh, more humiliating and onerous than, than you'd like it to be, and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And you just hope for the best. Yeah. That's, that would be interesting, though, to see what you wrote for Atlantis, The Lost Empire. To, right. And, I've you know, looked at that recently, and... Um, the structure and bones of it are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Um, specific dialogue, not so much. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure things are bounced around and changed. And and, and sometimes you probably even say, oh, how could they do that? I also wrote, like, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, not the world's greatest film. But mm-hmm. as an example, uh, part of the problem of, I mean, not a problem, but when you write something like that, there's so many other things, there's so many other cooks in it that Brent and I would, uh, I wrote that with Brent too, and we would want to go in one way, and and the game people would say, no, 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 you cannot do that. And then we'd say, well, what if we do this? And then the studio people would, no, 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 that that will undermine our Mortal Kombat franchise. Or So at the end of the day, you do cobble those kind of movies together by committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You you sort of say, well, what would you support? And you sort of your job then as a writer is to seek consensus among other people so that you can uh, put together something that people will like. Um, I've been lucky enough though to create five television series uh, that got on prime time in my career. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> the one thing that uh, Hollywood does tend to respect is the original writer on a television series. Mm-hmm. That there are exceptions, but uh, in my case, um, I was pretty much respected, at least most of the time. <laughs> Respect is a relative thing, but I was respected most of the time on the series that I created. But again, remember, if you just want every word that you wrote to stay and never change, then it won't be produced. You can have it exactly as you want it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But if you want someone to produce it, somebody's writing a check for millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, who who has the right to order changes? Um, right. Uh, you just got to – it's just an equation that is always in flux and flow, and you just have to go with the flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to have thick skin. <laughs> you do. You do. Yeah. And it's not easy all the time, but it, it's still something that you, you aim for. And you just try to keep a sense of humor about it and um, – um, I remember once on a, the first show I created called K. O'Brien, uh, we were called in by our, uh, you know, our main producer uh, Bill Asher, who was kind of a legend in the business, and for a Saturday meeting because we'd gotten some really difficult notes from the network, and everybody was bitching and moaning about having to be there on Saturday and what fools the networks were and everything, and Bill got a yellow legal pad and he started writing dollar signs on. Uh, individual pages, and he posted these on the wall. He taped them to the wall in the four co- the four walls in the room, and he said, "Now sit down and rewrite this thing." <laughs> and you know, sometimes that's what it takes. Hmm. It's your job. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can it, there there is art and there is commerce, and television involves both of them. Right. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, Bryce, uh, there's so many other things I want to talk to you about, but I know we're running out of time. Uh, maybe we can get you to come back another time. To uh... I, would do, I was going to say that. Um, it'd be my pleasure to come back some other time and talk about all this, and I, I really appreciate the chance to come on and, and uh, talk about uh, my latest uh, love, the Beatles book, Once It Was Away. That's mm. very lovely. And um, and it's always good to revisit uh, some of these things that we've done before. And, and if you... Um, if you're a, a true fan of Dark Skies, we could probably do a full a full show on that sometime. Oh, that's, that would be um, great. That's something that's very dear to my heart. So anyway, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, people, just so they have an idea of what you, you've done, you you know, Animal Amic... Uh, animal Armageddon. Uh, don't even say that. I don't even think about that one. I mean, <laughs> but... Um, I, I did. I did create or uh, develop a show called Mantis for Fox, which that's was right. the first African uh, American superhero. Yep. So that's uh, kind of an interesting. Given that we have Black Panther and stuff coming out, exactly. And yeah. African American superheroes on the CW and all that. But the yeah. first African American superhero on television was the Mantis. Yeah. Uh, on Fox. So I'm very proud of that. I think a lot of people actually know me because I also ran the Television Academy. Uh, for a period, I got ele- I was the first writer elected to run the TV Academy uh, since Rod Serling, yeah, and I got elected uh, two weeks before 9/11 hit, and we had to cancel the Emmys. Wow, yes. yeah, but, that's yeah. something we could talk about too someday. Yeah, that would be great. And and you know, then there's so many other things. Your books, uh, your your uh, after disclosure, and everything else. I mean, it it, it just goes on and on. So um, I really love to have you back. That would be great. Thank you. Well, I look forward to it. We'll uh, take that offline and work it out. All right. And uh, before we go, i got one final question, quick, real sure. quick. Uh, taking us away from all the things that you do, what do you watch on TV? What's your favorite shows now and of the past, and what's your favorite movies now and of the past? Oh, that's a great uh, – that's, uh, that's sort of like what's your favorite uh, Beatles song as right. well. <laughs> uh, what am I watching now? Um, you know, we uh, – I've started watching Counterpart. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, which is the uh, alternate uh, dimension uh, story on Showtime. Yeah. Although I'm, uh, I don't know that I'm loving it, so I can't say that's my favorite. Um, favorite films? I mean, I, it goes without saying you got to put The Godfather in there. But I also put Shawshank Redemption. I've seen that so many times. I can't, I can't believe it. A film that I'm kind of passionate about right now, even though not everybody likes it, is Ghost Story. A Ghost Story with uh, Casey Affleck. Love mm-hmm. that. Um, I love a lot of films. Um, I'm maybe I'm an easy audience, but I I realize how much work went into them, and I I like them for their their characters and all that. I liked um, Three Billboards this year; that was a good one. We get all the screeners, right? Um, television series, gosh, um, I because I'm an alternate history guy, I certainly enjoyed uh, Amazon's uh, Man in High Castle. Uh, I think that's very good. Yeah, um, and. You know, over the years, I've liked most of the things that uh, other people have liked. Um, and these days, we use, we watch Outlander. I watch uh, Shameless. I watch, I even watch This Is Us. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> my wife and I watch that together. I, you know, I, I here's what I, here's the thing. Because I was the Television Academy chairman, I developed a um, kind of a go-to position that. It, it's my job to stay current on what all television is. So uh, I watch a lot of TV. I watch almost a little bit of everything because every year they, you know, the 
doorbell rings and somebody shows up with more Emmy screeners for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll leave you with this thought. This year alone, uh, Netflix, just Netflix, not all the other places, just Netflix, gave each man and woman in the Television Academy, which is roughly 20,000 people, 21 pounds worth of DVDs. Oh, gee. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. yeah, how about that? Well, Bryce, I thank you so much for joining us. Everybody should go get Once There Was a Way, and it's going to be a great book. I'm gonna, I can't wait to read it, and I uh, thank, thank you so you. much for joining us. Take care. Thanks for everybody for listening. Bye-bye. And a big thank you going out to Bryce Zabel for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. Great book, Once There Was a Way. Love it. Ah, it is just a fascinating book and so much fun to read that and, you know, just sit back and think, what if the Beatles had stayed together? A uh, lot of fun. Check it out. And um, Bryce is, like I said, he's so much more than just the book. Uh, he, he gave us Dark Skies, Lois and Clark, and Mantis, and and all kinds of things. He's written a lot of other books. He's got a lot of great stuff out. Hopefully we'll get him back here and we'll uh, continue with our talk with him and find out all the things he's done. Very talented guy. Bryce Zabel, thank you very much. And uh, if you have a suggestion for a guest, send it to me at feedback at onscreenbeyond.com. And uh, we'll see what we can do about getting that guest on the show right here at On Screen and Beyond. And let's see what else we got uh, coming up uh, in March. We have Marion Ross, Mrs. C from Happy Days, is going to be joining us. So get ready for that. She's going to be a great guest, too. And we've got a lot of other things coming your way. And uh, But that's it for now. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zimrak. Take care. Take care.